I would say this lovingly, that students who sit on the front row in our classes and love listening to someone lecture, grow up to be lecturers, <laughs> teaching to the front row, who grow up to be lecturers who teach to the front row. And this, this momentum of kind of a subset of the population of the world keeps perpetuating itself. <clears throat> and any suggestion that we change is a threat to those that grew up in this circular world. It is a wonderful world. And, and this momentum has kept us strong for centuries. It, it also threatens our future. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious You, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we get to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I am joined for this episode by Scott L. Wyatt, who serves as Southern Utah University's 16th president. As you will quickly learn, President Wyatt is a highly innovative leader. During his time at SUU, he and the university's faculty and staff have received national recognition for innovations in experiential learning, general education, internship programs, and enrollment and retention among other things. This is his second presidency, having served previously as president of Snow College, also in Utah. He is a lawyer by training and has quite a distinguished public service record, including having served as a member of the Utah House of Representatives. We will include a link to his impressive bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, Scott, I'd like to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you, Melissa. It's delightful to be here. Let me start out. Um, by asking you about your professional journey. In your case, you're now in your second college presidency, as I mentioned, after a career in law and public service, what is the pathway that led you to your current role and what influences were most impactful along the way? Yeah, so I, a lot of people ask me that question, Melissa. So how did you go from being a criminal prosecutor doing uh, murders and rape cases <laughs> to being a college president? And the answer is, uh, I don't know. That's really a great question. <laughs> I'd love to know that myself. The, um, but what happened really is that when I was in college, my goal was to be in public service. My route to get there was law. But before I finished my undergraduate experience, I had had so many great moments with the president of my university uh, vice president and one of my advisors, I, I had a chance to be engaged in student government. So by the time I left, I thought, I want that too. So by the time I graduated, I had three completely separate careers that I wanted to, to be able to be part of. I saw them being related um, in some ways, but I wanted to have multiple careers. So I went to law school, came out, practiced law, um, got involved in uh, a variety of things, including, as you mentioned, a member of the legislature in Utah, and then um, surprise, um, an opportunity came up and, and I was recruited to, to be president of Snow College. 
Now that simplifies the story dramatically, of course. Um, I, was, I was a member of that college's board of trustees. My wife had graduated from that college. I knew a lot of people there. Um, and I had been engaged in a lot of higher education things. I just hadn't ever been an employee. <laughs> um, so the, but in, when we talk about innovation, um, I, I like to think that I'm constantly trying to re-innovate myself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I love that. I love the fact that I've had essentially three different careers. Um, my father, who was a college professor, was super happy that he had one. <laughs> so not everybody loves you know significant change but i've enjoyed it well and it sounds there like this well it it sounds like the seeds for what you're doing now were planted uh early on uh that you had the you had the opportunity to get up and close and personal to people who were doing the job of college administration and having a father who was a college professor, you knew something about the world of higher education from an early age. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and it's also true though that, um, and, and I think this has shaped me a lot, is that I didn't grow up in the culture mm -hmm. of higher education. I wasn't an employee that started at the beginning um, and, um, and then just moved through it. I rather started my life career with those people who, didn't have an education. I started my life um, as an attorney and then a criminal prosecutor where I saw all the societal consequences of the lack of education. And that has really, I think, had a profound impact on me because my world isn't surrounded by educated people. You know, my whole professional career hasn't been surrounded that way. My professional career has been uh, kind of at least a little bit more than half was all of the people that would have had a better life and all of the societal ills that would go away if we could somehow get education to everyone. Mm. Not just those who grab the front row seats. So. Well, now, now you mentioned um, innovation. You do have a reputation uh, as an entrepreneurial leader. And in fact, your podcast is entitled Solutions for Higher Education, where you talk with folks who are innovating across the higher ed landscape. As you consider your own experience and the experiences of your many podcast guests, what do you think it takes today in this current landscape, in this current environment for a college or a university to remain relevant and competitive? Uh, I wish I had a great answer to that question. That is the ultimate question, probably. Um, I, I think the answer is different for every institution. Um, for a selective institution, it's, there's one answer probably. For a community college, it's a very different answer. For a regional university like the one that I'm at that's in a rural community that's primarily residential, there's a very different answer for us than it would be for a regional university that's in a a growing urban setting. Um, I think that the if there was um, a simple answer to that, I think it is um, to just make sure that we have time to think, that our lives aren't completely consumed with email responses and committee meetings and uh, events and concerts and whatever that kind of consumes our lives, you know, as a as, as you well know, being a, a, um, a president or similar to being a president, some of those other roles at a university, one can easily find herself or himself consumed all the time. And um, that's a recipe for disaster. So I, I would say the answer is different for every school, but the key is to make sure that we don't um, allow ourselves to get so busy that we don't have long blocks of time to think mm. and, and to remain very connected to the students um, and to the people who choose to not be students. Mm. Um, it's hard to spend time with, 
with those folks, but um, but they're really, really, really important. Um, I learned when I was engaged in political campaigns that the only people I couldn't trust were the people who worked for me and with me. <laughs> because they wanted me to be happy. And we shared a common vision. And we thought everybody else should share that vision, you know? And, and if I was down in the dumps, they wanted to encourage me, right? So um, the old adage, uh, keep your friends close, but your, but your enemies closer. And, and if I take that word enemy and generalize it dramatically, we just need to keep the people, um, the students and those who choose to not be students closer to us. Otherwise, we, we just keep drinking the Kool-Aid and we never really, really have time to think about who we're missing or how the world is changing on us. That's a really good insight. Now, do you have some practices that you have instituted in terms of creating space in your own professional life so that you have time to think? Um, I run and I don't um, listen to music when I'm running. It's oh. time for me to think and work through ideas. Um, I, I, if I travel to a meeting in my car, I prefer to travel alone so that I can talk to myself. Because <laughs> there's a lot of time to talk to other people sure. in this business. Um, those are some of the things. And then I, I really prioritize time with students. Mm. Um, try to spend as much as I possibly can. I think I spend more time than most university presidents. Mm. Um, and it's typically unscripted. It's just walk down to the student center and stop and just start visiting with people. Mm. Um, so getting out of the office sounds yep. like is something you are right. intentional about doing as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about SUU and uh, some of the things that you are doing there to remain competitive. Well, we, um, and I think these are interesting. I can give you a couple that I, I think present some interesting challenges. So one is, is we um, started a three-year bachelor's degree. And what what I mean by that is, is that the students still go to the same eight semesters or however many it takes to finish. But we've taken the last year off and stuck it in the two summers between the first, second, second, third year. Um, now for most faculty members, they would prefer that we don't do anything in the summer. So that creates a little bit of resistance and in our minds, we think that school is a place to come, to sit down, to learn about poetry and about great thoughts and the arts and, and to develop an understanding of other cultures and people. And that this should be something that we just love and uh, spend as much time in. So when we started into a three-year bachelor's degree, I was actually quite, I shouldn't have been, but I was really quite surprised at how many uh, people were upset about it on campus. They, they thought I was suggesting that a university is something to move quickly through rather than something to just enjoy. Um, nobody was required to teach in the summer. No students were required to attend in the summer. And when I say a three-year degree, what I, what I mean by that is all of our major degree programs engineering, biology, chemistry, education, business, you, the list is a long one. All of those, you can get a degree within three years if you choose. That, that requires us to create a, a path, you know, that includes summers and a path that doesn't include summers. For all these series courses, it's, it's really quite a challenge. Um, but, but the point is, is that not every student wants to come and relax and just have a great educational experience. A lot of them feel an urgency in their lives to get on for whatever reason it might be, you know, married, career, age, um, family circumstances. Um, so trying to find opportunities that don't necessarily fit the culture that we prefer. 
Um, that's a way to stay relevant. That's the way to expand uh, our base and to be more competitive. Uh, another one that we did was a, a comprehensive dual enrollment program with a non-credit granting technical school that's in our community. And um, that's uh, turned out to be a great relationship for us, but it didn't start out um, as creating stackable credentials into the university. It didn't start out as creating a pathway into the university. It started out as creating a pathway from the university to the tech. <laughs> because we have students that come who then become disappointed um, because for whatever reason they weren't prepared or they can't decide on a major or they run out of money. And we felt that we had a responsibility to them and how can we help them? And so we started out by saying, what if we treated the tech as if it was another department of our university, articulating both directions so that a student that comes to Southern Utah University and then for whatever reason decides to stop out, we can help them move to the tech as if they were changing their major. Um, so, um, but it has resulted in a lot of people who are uncomfortable or worried or insecure about going to university, building their confidence in the tech. And then this close relationship makes it easier for them to move in. So I think that the competitiveness requires us to look for the students we're not getting or for the students that are looking for something that isn't natural for us. That's, I think that's really critical. Now, you have recently received a lot of attention for your newest invention, and I have read, I have heard it described this way, a no-frills, all-inclusive $9,000 bachelor's degree. I don't know if that's correct, but that's no. what I've read. <laughs> so, that's on. so can you tell us about this? How did it come about? Um, who's the market for the degree? And what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Um, I'll, I'll start out with what are we hoping to accomplish with it? We're hoping to do two things. One, we're hoping to get hundreds or a thousand or two students into the program. Um, if we could get a couple thousand students in it, that would be amazing for us. The second thing we're hoping to accomplish is, is we're hoping that a lot of other schools copy what we're doing and perhaps even improve on it. Because we're trying to start a movement as you know, Melissa, there's, I don't, I don't know the number, I've heard different numbers used, but as you know, it's close to 40 million Americans who have some college, but no degree. So those are people, some of whom just simply changed their minds, but many of whom we have failed and we're just too expensive for them. Um, so, so this whole idea came from um, our provost, John Anderson, said, hey, I got an idea, what do you think about it? And the answer was, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> so um, we've created a bachelor's degree. It's 100% online. The courses that are available are very limited. The, the number is very limited. It's 120 credit bachelor's degree for a bachelor's of general studies. We have a couple concentrations in it. And we'll probably expand to a couple more concentrations. But for a student who starts this, they will be told, this is your 120 credits. You don't have options. There may be a couple little options, but very, very few. Um, that's so that we can scale this um, and make it affordable. And then um, it's targeted towards students that some college credits, but no degree. This is a finisher. Um, and it doesn't work for everybody because some people need, I mean, you can't become an accountant with this degree. You can't become an engineer or a nurse. Um, but there's a lot of jobs that um, are available for students or people or advancements that the requirement is to have a bachelor's degree in, in any major. And, and this is a good degree to move on to a lot of professional 
graduate programs like an, uh, a master of public administration or business or even law school would, would work well. Um, the business model is set up um, so that the faculty that teach these courses, they're our own faculty members, but they're teaching an overload. So it's not within their regular pay. We couldn't afford to do it. Because when you add up, well, okay, so the a faculty member is making so much money plus benefits, divide that out by teaching three courses a semester or four courses a semester, and those classes are fairly expensive. But if we just say for, for two or $3,000 extra, um, would you teach this course in this program, um, then building this program on the margins, then it's very affordable and it's still the same quality experience. Um, we, we launched it this past year and then it's you know $75 a credit, which comes in at 9,000, no extra fees of any kind. Everything's how does, how, how does that compare to your uh, your standard tuition rate for your undergraduate degrees? So our regular um, graduation, our regular tuition is about sixty seven hundred for a year. Um, that doesn't include all of the program fees. So I would say we're about seven thousand a year for all of those costs. Um, and we have a plateau tuition. So that's the cost for a year, whether you're taking 12 credits or 18 credits. Um, um, but this, so this is dramatically less expensive. And how's, how's it going so far? So you launched uh, this fall. We launched it. Um, the, the initial year, we decided we were just gonna send one email out to students who had been enrolled at SUU but had no degree and weren't currently enrolled or hadn't been enrolled for the last year or so. So we sent this out to, I'm trying to remember, 12, 14 uh, people. Um, and it was uh, just a week or two before the start of school. Um, but we immediately had about 100 students jump into the program. What, and that's the total extent of marketing. <laughs> except for a few articles that were in the newspaper. Um, what we found was, is that the majority of the students that enrolled were in fact um, our former students who re-engaged. Um, but we have an international student. We have some out-of-state students. We have a few students who were right out of high school. Um, there's a, a very interesting collection of students that jumped in. Um, there's a lot that just can't afford us. There are so many people that just can't afford us, um, even if it's a great bargain. Sure. <laughs> and we think we're a great bargain, but there's some that just can't afford us. And um, happily, um, in our commencement that was just a couple of weeks ago, we had our first graduate of this Speedway program. So, Congratulations. That's, uh, that's yeah. exciting. And you, you got them through quickly if they just started in the fall. Well, so. Of course, the student had um, done most of the work, but then bailed out because of life got in the way and money just couldn't afford to finish. And this made it possible. So this is what we're really proud of. Well, and it connects the dots for you. I'm thinking about what you, what you shared at the beginning in terms of what, what uh, gives you meaning in terms of your work and making higher ed affordable um, it sounds like is at the top of the top of the list. So this this is your sweet spot, I think. It, it is at the top of the list, and um, we haven't raised tuition mm. for the regular students. Um, we've actually reduced tuition for our regular online students. Mm. We've held tuition for the face-to-face -face students flat, and we've reduced the fees. So it's less expensive to come to school here today than it was three years ago. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. 
The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Now, one of the things I occasionally hear from academic leaders has to do with just how hard it is to move an institution from point A to point B. And you've mentioned some of the resistance that uh, you've received with some of these new innovations. Uh, can you say a little bit about, uh, in your experience, um, why is it uh, more difficult to innovate in an institutional, in an academic setting? Um, what are some of the most powerful forces uh, that are at play in terms of the resistance to change? And do you have any advice for leaders about how to deal with yeah. whatever resistance they may encounter? Um, yeah, so um, I think there's at least three that I can think of on the top of my head. And the one we've already mentioned briefly, and that is distraction. Um, my life can be absolutely completely consumed weekends, evenings, all day in meetings and emails and talking to donors and community and it's just completely consumed. Um, and everyone else really, to some degree, is in the same boat. So it's as if there's a conspiracy afoot to keep us from thinking about any change. Um, because we are just so consumed with all of this. That's, that's a big one. A second one is momentum. Um, we've been doing this forever. Um, I would say this lovingly, that students who sit on the front row in our classes and love listening to someone lecture, grow up to be lecturers, <laughs> teaching to the front row who grow up to be lecturers who teach to the front row. And this, this momentum of kind of a subset of the population of the world keeps perpetuating itself. Mm. And any suggestion that we change is a threat to those that grew up in this circular world. Mm. It is a wonderful world. And, and this momentum has kept us strong for centuries. It, it also threatens our future um, as the world is changing so much more rapidly. You know, it, for, for centuries, the source of information was the libraries at our universities, but that's not the source anymore. With, with uh, the internet, uh, people can find information in lots of places. So that's another one. And then I think the third issue that comes to my mind quickly is the incentives are all against change. Um, the private sector, the for-profit institutions have profit as a motive. We don't have profit as a motive. In fact, we don't have anything as a motive. Um, we have demotives. Um, if, if I put in an extra amount of effort to try to do some special innovation, and, and I could give you stories about this, <laughs> um, all I get is grief, and resistance, um, I'm not talking about any particular group, my faculty or staff or the community or anybody else. I'm just talking in general that, um, that if I pursue some innovative thing, there is so much resistance. Uh, anybody whose cheese is being moved by this immediately starts fighting against it. 
anybody in another institution that feels like maybe we're getting ahead fights against it and we're in a statewide system. Um, there, there's just so much resistance and there's no reward except for the satisfaction of doing something amazing. Um, that's, that's a major problem. That's a major problem for us. Um, we have to create culture that makes innovation rewarded. And, and in, a, in my world of the public university setting, that is so hard. Um, it, it, it's just really hard. My, my advice is, is that we have got to set aside some people who can, and time, I tell my team, um, you know, if if we assume a 40-hour work week, which isn't the case, <laughs> but if we assume a 40-hour work week, uh, we have to set aside a day every week that we can really think uh, and strategize. Um, and it doesn't work, but we have to find hours every week to do this. We've got to find a way to support those who are interested in innovation and remove barriers for them and protect them. Um, we need to find ways to encourage them along with um, incentives. They're just, we have to create people and spaces where this is promoted. Um, and and it's, it can't simply be who wants to volunteer and I'll put you all in a committee. That, that doesn't work because if we just say, I want, to, I want an innovative group to volunteer and we'll create this uh, little task force, some of the people that volunteer for that are people that don't want change to happen. They're, they're there to protect themselves. Um, and some people like to think that they're innovative, but they're really not. They just don't see it. So we, we have to find those people who are really, really focused on it and then help them be successful. Yeah, and obviously you are doing that. I know some of the folks who are on your senior team and um, there is strong innovation there. So, so obviously you have done some things through your leadership uh, to reinforce and build an innovative culture. Um, so, but it sounds like from what you're saying that it starts by being very, very intentional about it and making time and space and, uh, yeah. yeah, we, we had, we had, uh, when we were doing our dual enrollment program, that's what we call it. It's really a transfer program because <clears throat> students aren't enrolled at this one class is a class at one institution, not at both. Mm -hmm. Um, unless it's a high school program. But when we started into this, we gathered everybody together and the registrar, and, and there, you can imagine how these conversations go. Well, that won't work because, or we might lose money because. So somebody's got to be in the room that says, uh, actually, I don't care if we lose money. And then everybody's just shocked. You, I said, no, if, if a student figures out that they can take a class at the tech and it costs that student less than taking it at SUU, then hooray for that student. We want to train up bright people. So we're okay about losing some money. Everybody relax. And then if somebody says, well, if we make this so that they can transfer from our university to the tech, we might actually lose a couple enrollments. And somebody's gotta be in the room to say, that's okay, we're not here to benefit ourselves, we're here to serve our students. And the better we serve our students, the better our reputation will grow and the better and the more healthy of an institution will become. So someone has to be there to constantly say, um, that sounds like a barrier, but it isn't, forget it. We have to think from a whole new mindset. Um, well, what about this, you know? Um, what about, um, um, what about registration? We have one computer system and they have a different one. We can't blend these together. I understand that, but we'll find a way. <laughs> and if that means we take their numbers on a piece of paper and we enter them in, that's all right. Um, because we're committed to innovation. We know that there's gonna be uh, a dozen 
barriers to everything we try to do. Somebody has to be there to say, that's okay. Mm. We'll figure, we'll find a way. And that's a role that you play that's and- My uh, role. Yeah. And as and I model that role, my vice presidents figure out, mm. oh, actually this is okay. Mm. And then the deans and everybody else figures out, oh. I mean, the number of times, Melissa, that I've sat down with somebody and said, well, why don't you think about this? I, most of the time, the answer I get is, well, I didn't think that was possible. Mm. So I haven't. And I says, well, it's a great idea. Let's just say it's possible. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out before we, before we assume that this might, be, might not work. Mm. Creating a culture is so hard. Mm. Um, it's so hard because I, I have a thousand employees. I can't talk to them all. I, I figured out if I spent 30 minutes with every full-time employee, that would take six months. Um, and that means I haven't done any work other than talk to them. Um, and what I say to one person isn't necessarily communicated on clearly to the next one or the next one. That's part of the reason why we started the podcast. Um, but it's just really hard. So it just takes a tremendous amount of patience. Um, a lot of patience and, and a lot of uh, attempts to communicate public mm -hmm. campus-wide forums. And um, anyway, it, it, it can work, but shifting this momentum and making people realize, no, actually, if you've got a great idea, do it. We started what we call, probably somebody owns this phrase, we started what we call Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. uh, but we just started an innovation thing and we invited anybody on campus to come forward with proposals. Um, and we would set what we're looking for. Um, and then anybody that wants to um, bring a proposal forward, you have to get it vetted through the budget office so that we have some confidence in your numbers. But if you got an idea, we put aside a million dollars of one-time funding. Uh, and then we had hearings and people came forward with ideas. Um, what I found is, frankly, is that we get a lot of good ideas, but the ideas that we get aren't big ideas. Mm. Because people, people in these settings don't, most people don't think big ideas are possible. Mm. Um, and that makes sense because we've been doing the same thing since Plato started the academy 400 years before Christ. We, we don't think of things mm. very different. It's hard. It is. It is hard. And changing the culture is one of the hardest things I think there is to do. But you've, you've just offered some really helpful insights that starts with being intentional as a leader, communicating, um, defining reality. You know, you've, through, mm. through what you're describing, you do a lot of that in terms of making it clear that innovation is something you want and that you encourage. Um, and uh, then the seeking of big ideas. I don't know how you, I've heard this from so many presidents that I've talked to that, uh, that they want big ideas from the people with whom they work, but uh, they, don't, they don't get it very often. It's, um, we, we have a hard time seeing outside of our, the world that we know and it's been going on forever mm. so so typically what happens is is that some for-profit school pops up in a place like phoenix arizona <laughs> <laughs> and starts a university that we all look down our noses on um, and then eventually reputable universities around the country hire all those people into their operation to do what they used to look their, down their noses on. Mm. Um, and um, we just we've just got to we've just got to um, um, recognize that our job is to not sit around and wait for some profit motivated organization mm. to to invent online education for us mm. and whatever the next uh, ideas are that right. But it's that we have the smartest people in the world on our campuses. They just need to, to, to 
to see the possibilities through the culture and encouragement uh, and space that we create for them. And I, I think our possibilities for maintaining the quality educational experience, deepening it and making it more rich, while at the same time creating opportunities for students in, in a variety of ways that are different from that are endless. We've got all the people we need. We just have to figure out how to help everyone think about new ways. That's the, that's the challenge. So it's got to be modeled from the top and supported from the top. Now, I want to change, change topics just a little bit here. I read somewhere that your leadership brand is all about innovation and frugality. And that made me pause. So first of all, is that a fair description? Is it accurate? And if so, how does that actually play out in practice? Uh, no, I think that's accurate. I, I love that, actually. Um, I am far more frugal in my business life than I am in my personal life, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I give myself license to spend my own money uh, a bit more wastefully than the public trust money. <laughs> um, we, I went to college and nothing was going to keep me from going. And it was expensive for me, but I found a way and I was going to make it happen. Um, and so I kind of tend to think that everyone is like me, that if they value it enough, they'll find a way. And the federal government is helping us with Pell Grants and loans and all this kind of stuff. So there's a way. Well, that's not true. It's not true. And, and th because there are millions of Americans that can't find a way. Um, we have unlimited opportunities for people to go to college and have an amazing experience who can afford it. And we have unlimited opportunities for students, people who want to go to college and have the time to spend all day every day for four or five or six years or however long it takes them. We have unlimited opportunities for them. We don't have unlimited opportunities for those who can't afford it. For most universities, uh, particularly the for-profits and um, those types of schools, online education is not cheaper than face-to-face. -face. It's more expensive. Uh, the number of schools that I've talked to who tell me that their online program subsidize their face-to-face -face reveals that their online is subsidizing their face-to-face. -face. <laughs> They're charging those students who, have a, who don't have the resources, time or money to come on campus. They're charging them a premium to support the face-to-face. So um, we just have to recognize that there are millions of people out there that can't afford it, time or money. And we've got to find a way. And um, while the schools around me raised tuition two or three or four or 5% uh, this year, and we didn't raise it at all, but actually reduced some of the fees, the marginal uh, benefit is rather small and almost unnoticeable. The motivation to do it isn't that great. Um, and sometimes people get irritated with me for making them look bad. You know, just, just raise it a couple percent and then the rest of us don't look bad. Um, and it, but, but I'm trying to make a statement as much as anything else that we can live within our means and we can have an amazing experience. Our, our enrollments are going up, our retention rate is going up, um, our employment rates, the, the experience is going up. Uh, those aren't dependent on raising tuition. Those are just dependent on being a disciplined, uh, budget conscious organization. Instead of overlooking a problem, we resolve a problem. That helps us. I have found that as a president, I can do more good financially by being a good manager of resources than I can by raising money. 
that the sources of revenue for us are fundraising, but they're also from careful management within. And, and, and I can get more money uh, that way than I can, particularly for ongoing programs. You know, nobody's really donating money for ongoing mm. programs. So, so that is my, my effort at fundraising is primarily internal and with the state legislature who supports us. Uh, and, and, I, and I love, I love doing that. You're talking about taking the stewardship of resources seriously that are uh, under your authority. And yeah, Melissa, our normal, our normal thing is, is that, oh, this isn't working very well, but you know, it's somebody's pet project. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, and I, I like those people and they like me and I just, mm -hmm. I just don't want to upset it. And, and I, I'm generalizing by using that as kind of a generic example, but um, the, so I, we're just going to raise tuition and we're going to get some more money and, and we'll just kind of work around that. Mm -hmm. If I want to create something new, then uh, nobody wants to do it. So we'll just hire somebody new to, to do this. Um, and it, and it's, it, it just keeps compounding. That's why our, that's one of the reasons. It's not, it's not the major reason, but it's one of the reasons why tuition for higher education is growing faster than inflation and has done for decades. Um, we don't have the profit incentive. We don't, we don't pay dividends. So we get money and we spend it. And, uh, and there really isn't a good check on necessarily. Now for some there is. It, it, at my school, there really isn't a check. I, I really can raise tuition, um, five or 10% and I could get away with it. And I can keep it flat and we'll be supported in that. Um, I know some states, they can't raise tuition at all. You know, so this, this varies depending on where we are, but, um, but I'm absolutely convinced and I can show you the numbers to prove it, <laughs> that I can raise more money by being innovative and impressing others to want to be part of what we're doing and also being budget conscious than I can by just spending the bulk of my time, which, which a lot of presidents do, uh, out on the fundraising uh, circuit. I wanted to ask you to look back over your career, your two college presidencies in particular, uh, and reflect on the greatest lessons that you've learned. So is there, is there one or are there two lessons that have really uh, stuck with you? Uh, that is such a good question. Um, maybe, I, maybe I would offer a couple ideas. One is I can have anything I want. I just can't have everything I want. Mm. Um, we have resources enough to do anything we'd like. We just don't have enough to do everything we'd like. So focus is so super important. And, and I would rather have really high quality, less of really high quality than more of not so high quality. So it's, it's a matter of being focused and, and direction. Um, the other thing I would say from a leadership um, view from my whole life would be um, if, I, if what I want from my colleagues and um, the, those that I work with, if what I really want is love and friendship, then I really should go get a different job. Mm. Because successful leaders, um, although we all have this internal desire to be loved, um, Leaders who focus too much on that never succeed. So I've had to settle for respect. And, and there's a lot of times when someone has asked me for something uh, over my career, not just in higher ed, but when I was an attorney. Um, you want me to do this, and you would love me if I did. But I'd rather have your respect. And, um, and so, so I'm going to do something slightly different. Um, uh, that that helps helps us focus on being honest, communicating clearly, um, not trying to please the last person we talk to, <laughs> not trying to please everyone, which is impossible. Um, but to just say, you know what, I I I I want to I want to make good decisions. I want to listen. I want to be careful. 
I want you to know that I care about you. I want you to know that I value what you're thinking. But at the end of the day, um, um, I, I, I'm not just after everyone's love. <laughs> anyway, there you go. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. No, that's, those are wise words. And I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about some of our doctoral students at BayPath in higher ed who are emerging leaders. And I'm thinking how valuable these words will be for them to hear because that's one of the challenges that I see in uh, younger leaders in particular who are just coming into their own to understand how to balance that, that desire that we all have to be liked with having the backbone and the strength to do what you need to do, which sometimes will mean going, going against um, um, the tide. Yeah, Melissa, this may, this may come from my, my prior life as, um, as a parent of small children. And it also may come from my life as being a criminal prosecutor that um, parents whose number one value is their children's love are horrible parents. <laughs> parents whose number one value is to do the right thing for their children can, can be really great parents. And um, so I, anyway, the, our, our life experiences loop around all the way through. Oh, they certainly do. So, all right. So here's my last question, Scott. And this is the signature question we ask everybody who comes on the Ingenious podcast. And so that question is really timely right now. Um, as we look to what we think is going to be the end of the pandemic, uh, and as you look to the future, what do you think needs to be on the radar of college and university leaders right now? What issues or concerns do we all need to be paying attention to and why? Um, if the number is 36 million, I would say what we should all be paying attention to is the 36 million Americans who have some degree, some, mm -hmm. some credit, but no degree. Um, and the however many millions that chose to never register at the beginning. Um, we spend a lot of time with the students that register and stay with us. We need to spend more time with those who drop out or never engage at the beginning. I think that's the key. Solson and you've been listening to Ingenious You. This is our last full episode of season two. We will be taking a short break during the remaining summer months as we begin to plan for season three. If there is someone you would like to hear us speak with in season three, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please reach out and let us know. We would love to honor your ideas in our next season of conversations. Be sure to join us for our ongoing free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Ed webinar series. These are held monthly and we have some terrific presenters scheduled during the next few months. More information can be found at baypath.edu slash Also, subscribe now so you don't miss out on the release of our Ingenious Hue minis. These are short episodes highlighting the most compelling and insightful aha moments from our season two conversations that we will be releasing while we're on break. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and stay strong.